Hello, hello, my lovely podcast listeners. If I sound extra crispy, I feel like I'm doing ASMR. If I sound extra crispy today, it's because I'm actually speaking on a brand spanking new mic. So exciting. Unfortunately, this interview was not recorded with this mic, unfortunately, but I am excited to use this mic moving forward. So get pumped. These are the little things in life when you become an adult that you get really excited for. Today on the podcast, we have a brand that I've had my eye on for so long. Pop-Up Grocer is a traveling pop-up grocery store. And if that sounds weird, I promise you the concept is actually really cool. I had the opportunity to visit the location that's actually live right now in Chicago. It's in Wicker Park and it was awesome. I spent a ridiculous amount of money. (laughs) And that's because inside this pop-up, they feature the most innovative food, beverage, home, pet, and body care brands. So if you're someone who loves exploring and discovering new brands, this is your jam. Side note, not trying to make a pun, but I got the most amazing jam while I was there. It was like a pear, like a spiced peppercorn pear I think it was so good. I need to go back and get some more because it was amazing. But yeah, that's part of what the the next big thing is all about is discovering new brands and Pop-Up Grocer does all of that for you. So in this episode, I chat with the founder and CEO of Pop-Up Grocer, Emily Schilt, and she talks about her journey as an entrepreneur as well as how her dad inspired her to become an entrepreneur, which the story is really cute. I love it. Uh, And it's very clear that his entrepreneurial spirit definitely rubbed off on Emily. We also talk about what it's like being a solo founder and how grocery stores as we know it are changing, especially after COVID and what the next big thing in grocery stores really looks like. So let's get into the conversation. I know you guys are going to love this one and I will catch you on the flip side. Let's get started. What is Pop-Up Grocer? Pop-Up Grocer is currently a traveling showcase of the latest and greatest in consumer packaged products that fall under the grocery umbrella. We feature about 150 brands, largely food and beverage, but home, pet, and body care, and around 400 products. And we pop up at different cities across the country and introduce people to all of these exciting new things for 30 days at a time. Love it. I have so many questions because I'm like, oh my gosh, that sounds like pure chaos. <laughs> I'm sure you have lots <laughs> to say about that. Chaos, which, <laughs> yeah, I'm totally. Still whether I do or do not. <laughs> <laughs> What's this concept behind having this pop-up experience versus people just going to the grocery store to shop, especially for people that might not be familiar with the consumer packaged goods space and how getting placement on like a grocery store shelf works. Like why is a pop-up experience? So obviously it's unique, but why is it so appealing in this space? Yeah. In my opinion, the grocery store that we have currently available to us is not working for so many reasons, but number one, because it is no longer convenient and perhaps it never was. I mean, they're 40,000 square feet on average. They're massive. They have, you know, around 40,000 to 50,000 SKUs for those not in the industry. Like that's units of product. And so it's something that we do very often. I think more than 80% of Americans go to the grocery store and pre-pandemic, but is still 
pretty consistent more than twice a week. So it, it's somewhere that we're going often, and yet it is a very exhausting, taxing, like mentally <laughs> process for us to just get the foods that we want. And so it doesn't really, or the foods that we need really, and it doesn't leave a whole lot of exciting, joyful time for discovering new products. So, and I feel pretty similar, but different about the online experience, you know, online, we might be able to target the things that we need more directly, but we don't really want a discovery experience online. So what we do with the pop-ups is we curate uh, and narrow a selection of vetted products for people um, and give them something that is very manageable and fun to explore. And then the theory is that you can go on to purchase those with sort of direct intent online or off elsewhere. Nice. What's also really interesting compared to, so Emily and I were chatting before we started recording about generational differences in, in grocery shopping. And it's interesting to even think about someone going to this type of experience and picking a packaging and being able to see what their social channels are, what their website is, right? There's so many details that are now included in packages versus our parents' generation that would have never been something that would have been on a package, right? I mean, obviously social channels and websites didn't exist, but it's different now that packaging is almost kind of like the marketing vehicle too. So as people are enjoying brands through your experience, they can also just figure out where to find the brand as a next step. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that people care a lot more. I mean, not I think, it's obvious that people by and large care a lot more about what they're eating, what ingredients they're selecting, what sort of company morals they're aligning themselves with. And though that puts a lot of responsibility on the individual to read the labels and do the research. And what we aim to do is help people out by doing a lot of that work for them. That's what makes it so unique. How do you curate and select the brands that are part of the experience? What's that process like? Well, my favorite part for sure and I'm getting nervous about, you know, having to become this boring CEO where I live in like a PL <laughs> <laughs> and I never get to source the brands because that's yeah. how I got into this whole shindig. Yeah. Um, but we use three driving criteria, the first of which is really sort of the weightiest and the most important. And it's just, is the brand doing something interesting, something innovative, um, something really novel? And that typically leads to the product being plant-based or using an ingredient in a new format and being sustainable. So that's really the biggest one. Then the second considers whether it's food or body care product, if the ingredients are in fact sourced uh, responsibly. And then the third is around the look of the product. We know people shop with their eyes. And so we ensure that the packaging is aesthetically pleasing and also contributes to the overall look and feel of our environment. Well, can I ask, what is a brand that to you, what is one of the brands that you just saw and immediately you have to have it as part of the experience? <laughs> Lots. The first one that comes to mind is a new brand from one of the co-founders of Hugh Kitchen or their line of 
products and it's called Snow Days. It is a cassava based pizza bite. Yeah, I've seen it. I can I can like visualize the packaging because I remember reading the the name and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so we love as a result of our community loving sort of remodeled or refashioned products of our childhood or products that we have felt we've had to put on the no list for so long and now are being made with better ingredients and more intent and we feel like we can indulge uh, in them once again. So, you know, better for you cereals, better for you candies, better for you pizza bites. Interesting. I have, oh my God, I have so many questions. Okay. (laughs) I'm like going to save some of the questions that I have later on, because obviously in this podcast, you know, we're talking to people that are budding entrepreneurs who have ideas. And I just think you have insight and intel into what really makes some of these brands successful, but I'm going to hold on some of those. I would love to know what it's like coordinating this in-person experience. What goes into the planning for this? Yeah. uh, Our process essentially starts with selecting the brands, of course. And then, you know, we've really created, sure, what might be chaos because it's a model that has never been attempted before, but in many ways is much more efficient than that of the traditional grocery store model. So we coordinate direct shipments of product to our locations rather than working through distributors. Essentially, we showcase the product for 30 days, people come in and purchase it, and then we work on consignment with the brand. So anything that is unsold is shipped back to them or donated to local food banks or included within our e-commerce boxes at the end of the experience. It's, It's kind of logistically difficult because we had to figure it all out from day one, and I had no idea what we were doing. I've never been a part of retail in any way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, except as a customer. So that was all really fun, but you know, now it's not our first rodeo. So we have we have steps and and operational process which we can follow. Just cool. how do you pick the cities that you decide to go into? It's a marriage of where the brands that we work with are looking to establish themselves or support a new expansion. And then where we see consumer demand, either, you know, direct requests from our community at large or where we see high expenditure in natural food. Got it. And and what did you do before Pop-Up Grocer? And, and did you know that you wanted to become an entrepreneur? Or was it just something where you saw an opportunity and you were like, I'm going to do this? Yes, I think entrepreneurialism is in my blood. My dad had a few different ventures, for example, or ideas, one of which being running raisins, which I just always loved because they were just raisins. (laughs) But he found a way to position them to runners. So I think that's what kind of turned me on to being a marketer. Oh, that's like, so fascinating. I, I love, love that. people in this <laughs> And I had a number of uh, ventures prior to Pop-Up Grocer myself in kind of the food meets events space, which I guess you could say I'm still in. And I 
was a brand marketer for food companies prior to Pop-Up Grocer. I had established my own brand marketing consultancy called Sourdough and worked with a lot of small food companies to help them bring new products to market or even help them establish their brand from day one, like working with graphic designers to do the brand identity. So that's really the space in which I understood there was an opportunity to create a better retail experience for launching products. I love the story of your dad. That's, it's so true. It's like you add in a little element and then all of a sudden you're like, this is for runners, but it's just reasons, but it's like, no, this is for runners. It's so good. How did you decide to make the pivot from doing something on the brand identity side and branding side? Yeah. So I was working with a number of clients who, you know, food D to C somewhat new. So I was working with a number of clients who were exploring that. And that's kind of the first thing that I noticed that they're just, you know, unfortunately for these D to C brands, there really wasn't a space in which their target consumer could touch and feel and more intimately explore their product, not to mention buy, let's say, one can of uh, sparkling water versus a case in a subscription capacity. So there really wasn't an era, a space in which they could have a lower commitment or an easier trial. So that was kind of the spark where the idea came from was to create something for my clients. Obviously I did not have, we we launched uh, our first store with 120 brands inside. I think I did not have 120 clients. Wow. That's amazing. (laughs) Um, So, so I, I took what I learned from those few clients that I had at the time and then reached out to a number of other brands to see if it was something that they would be interested in. Very quickly, I understood the demand was much greater than I anticipated. Wow. If a brand wants to make it in this space, knowing that your background is around branding, how much is a brand success tied to their branding and their package design versus what the actual product is? I don't think you can separate the two which a lot of entrepreneurs unfortunately think that you can, that somehow if you have a great product, you know, at least for a period of time, you can overlook the branding, but that is a false assumption. Yeah. It's almost like a non-negotiable at this point. It it is a hundred percent a non-negotiable. That's not to say that you have a, if you have a shitty product and you put it in a beautiful package, someone's going to discover after their first purchase, of course, the reality of the situation. And that's not going to help you because then that'll lead to negative word of mouth and, you know, et cetera. So you need to have both. (laughs) Sorry. But how do you gather feedback from the brands that you feature in pop-up grocer? So are you constantly switching out brands or is it pretty much, you know, the same from city to city? In my original plan, I had envisioned essentially a class of brands that we would travel the country with. Uh, It doesn't work out so perfectly just because some brands have interest in certain cities. Some brands can't afford it from a marketing perspective. We operate an advertising model. So there's a showcase fee to participate in our stores. But we certainly, I would say, have worked with more than 50% of our entire roster of brands on multiple stores or activations. We've also done some kind of store-in-store concepts or branded shelves. Again, we have our e-com boxes. 
so yeah, we're always aiming to, especially if we're returning to the same city, we want to bring that city an entirely new set of brands. And even digitally, as we introduce each sort of family, you know, we want to make sure that we're, we're bringing our audience a new discovery every time. Do you think that if someone's looking to start a brand in this space, that the, the introduction of more brands means less success for all of the brands since the market is so saturated right now with these products? Hmm. Yes. I mean, unfortunately, you know, by nature of having so many chips, let's say anyone chip has less market share to grab. But I don't think that means that you're going to be unsuccessful. I just think you have to temper your expectations as far as what the opportunity is. Yeah. What do you see as some of the brands who have been really successful in your eyes? Is there anything that they've consistently done Maybe it's in their marketing or in obviously their branding and package design is important and the product itself is important. But is there like a thread that you notice with like the brands that really, really make it? Uh, I think the through line on product success in our stores are these better for you versions of products that we've put on the no list for so long. So lower sugar gummies, higher protein cereal, cauliflower crust pizza. So from a product development standpoint, that's kind of the the sweet spot. And then I guess I would just say, mm, I wonder what the way to say this is without calling it authenticity, because that word has lost all authenticity. (laughs) But I think, you know, founders who really have a strong connection, particularly when it comes to food products, you know, founders who have really strong connection with the products that they're creating or the origin of those products, you know, take like an Amsam and, you know, their sisters and the way that they have cultivated like a real relationship with their customer and a broader community, I think is really admirable and is the way in which people want to interact with the things that they buy now, you know, is much more emotive and with heart and maybe with even the feeling that they're contributing to like real change. It's, I had a conversation with a few of the other founders that we've had on the podcast and we were talking about this because I think a lot of founders and even, and I don't want to stereotype, but it seems like it's a common theme with female founders, especially of feeling kind of like vain or narcissistic to make themselves as a part of the brand or the face of the brand to a degree. Like I think about Amsam, actually, it's so funny when you, when I asked you about a brand that comes to mind, I was thinking Amsam because their branding to me, is so bright that yeah. you can't miss it. But I love that you brought that up because it really feels like that's becoming more intertwined of showcasing who the founder is, showcasing the story behind the brand and using that as an opportunity to tell the story because people actually want to hear that versus the brands that we've been so used to shopping in the grocery store. You can never tell what that story is. So it almost seems like that's a a shift in how brands go to market at this point. And they have a real point of view and a real perspective and I don't think that every brand can have can or should have that, you know, at a certain point, like, I don't need my cereal to be 
telling me their political <laughs> you know like I, I just <laughs> yeah magic spoon can you tell us please <laughs> like what is your stance <laughs> but where it's appropriate and where it's true I think it's not only warranted but it's really desired let's talk about grocery store shopping behavior because that's obviously shifted I know for me with a lot of these brands that honestly you might be featuring in pop-up grocer I've done the subscribe and save on their website. So it's not even through Amazon. It's obviously not through the grocery store. What are your thoughts on how the shopping experience is evolving time goes on? Obviously 2020 had a major impact on what this looks like, but do you see more brands shifting to focusing on their own e-com websites to drive a lot of that? Or is it a multifaceted approach where they're on Amazon and e-com and maybe in store? What's your take on that? I mean, it's omni-channel. Uh, a brand has to be everywhere. I don't think any. I don't think in talking to any brand, they would view their own e-commerce channel as uh, a significant enough for them to really build their business upon it. However, like it's great for loyalty. It's great for driving trial, and you know, it could be significant. I just don't know if it's like it it's possible for it to be it. And as as far as the broader changes in the grocery industry, yeah, I mean, you know, this past year was incredible. E-commerce or online gro- grocery shopping has just been so slow to grow compared to other industries. So it's really exciting to see that we're no longer moving at the snail's pace. I do believe that we have established these habits and we will retain them, you know, the new normal post post pandemic. However, I know it's a convenient theory for me, but, but I really do believe that we'll use them to to buy the things that we're familiar with and the things that we know we need to restock our pantry or our linen closet with. I don't think that it is how we will discover new products. Interesting. I feel like the grocery store experience is so slow to innovate. And it's kind of crazy. I thought the last year would make it faster, but it almost feels like it's been stagnant. It's weird. I don't know why that is. It's, 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 it, there needs to be a change. And I feel like I find myself going to smaller stores actually and e commerce more so than just doing everything in one trip at this point. Yeah. I also think there's such an opportunity with food specifically because it is it's it's such an intimate uh, choice it's such a vulnerable choice you know it's what we put in our bodies that nourishes us that gives us energy or you know if we make poor choices it depletes us of that and so there's there's just inherently this opportunity for connection i think through those food choices and through those food interests. And that's a real lost opportunity in current grocery stores. There are certainly like some smaller neighborhood groceries where you feel connected to to those physical places, but I still don't really think that they do a good job of fostering connection among community members. And so that's something that we're particularly interested in and pursuing. We're opening, I mean, we already create an experience and really do foster connection through our pop-ups, but you know, it is unfortunate that they're only 30 days long. So it's not really like a reliable, steady hangout or meeting place. So we're actually moving into a permanent space 
hopefully that will open at the end of October or at the end of this year in October in New York. And, you know, part of that will include programming. So we can have tastes, tastings and talks and ways that people can uh, meet and collaborate on an ongoing basis. Oh, I love that. Wow. That feels like almost like my favorite bookstore doing something, cultivating that community vibe. I love that. And that's not, that doesn't exist. I feel like that doesn't happen. Totally. Yeah. Like actually, oh goodness. Now, of course I can't think of the name of it, but like on Prince Street in Soho, there is a bookstore and now the name is totally escaping me. But anyway, yeah, I mean, I can think of a number of places. There's a bookstore, there's a coffee shop in Soho. I don't know why all of my choices are in Soho called Saturdays. There's a clothing store in the Lower East Side that just opened a coffee shop. And another one I can think of in Soho called Ame Leon. Like there are all of these places that are, that are establishing themselves is so more, much more than the products that they offer. I think it's so natural for grocery to do that, but just no one is doing it to date. So right. It's crazy. Pioneers there. When you think about even like sharing recipes and cooking, there's so much that could be there. And that's, I, oh, I just love that. I think that's so great. And I think that that's such a welcome thing to do, especially after COVID where people feel disconnected. So that's awesome. Let's say that someone wants to start a consumer packaged goods brand, but they don't have connections. They just have an idea, let's say. What are the first steps that they should be taking to understand if it's a viable idea and then also starting to build the connections they need to build the brand? I love this question because I get a lot of people who talk to me about their ideas often. I think what separates an ideas person from a founder is getting started. So that would be my first piece of advice is just make the product, get it in the hands of someone, see if it tastes good, you know, get it in the hands of many people, understand if there's actually a market for it. Is it does it fit into people's lives? And I believe that the rest rolls out from there but you really need something that is tangible and real and also that like commitment to yourself to have a business and not an idea to actually make that transition. Can you touch on that a little bit more? Like what does it mean to commit as a business versus just having an idea? Is it the like what you just talked about or is it more than that? I mean, for, for me personally, having the financial commitment is motivating. So for someone who is interested in making a protein bar, I don't know, that could just be simply in the financial commitment to actually produce that sort of first MVP. For me, it was putting down the money for our refrigerators and rent on our first location. It's like, all right, I've got it. I don't have this, this happening. Money, so <laughs> I figure out how I'm going to come up with that money, which means yeah. I like hell to get all of our brands on board wow. so that I can pay bills for it. In the past, you know, that's meant like if I sell a client on something and, you know, they pay me a 50% deposit in advance of getting started, that means I better figure out how the heck to be a marketing consultant and what my process is because they're paying me money to deliver on my promise. Right. Uh, so for me, it's always a financial commitment, but maybe it could be an allocation of your time or, or some, some other thing that feels binding. Yeah. 
What is um, the most valuable lesson you'd say that you've learned as an entrepreneur? Ooh. I mean, as an entrepreneur, you're constantly learning. That's why I like it, even though it's so hard. Every day, every day is different. Sounds so trite, but like every day is varied, good and bad. And that keeps life interesting for me and motivates me. I guess right now, I don't really know if it's the most valuable thing I've learned, but the most uh, present thing for me is utilizing other people. I'm a very isolated person. My therapist likes to call it my island that I live on. I'm just very independent. I am very self-reliant and that can be scary as you grow as an entrepreneur and very overwhelming to just continuously rely upon your own opinions and decision-making processes. So the necessity really also just to ensure that your ideas are not just yours but are those of your customers of your vendors of your clients is to to ask for help (laughs) and not look upon that as a weakness oh that's a tough one (laughs) I feel like I'm still learning that because I'm also very independent and there's a satisfaction in being that independent, but it really, especially as, cause you're, you're a single founder right now, right? Yeah. So it's, it's too much also, like it will destroy you as a single founder. If you... It will destroy you. <laughs> and like, people want the groceries, so I can't be destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> Quick question for you. Did you ever decide to be a single founder? Because you know what? I'm also a single founder too. And I find that a lot of people have always told me, get a co-founder. And I'm someone that just doesn't want to do it. And I don't think I'm going to do it. But did you ever have those voices of, of telling you that? And and is it possible to make it as a single founder? First question, have I heard that? Yes, actually, we're currently raising money, but before I was ever really officially raising, I got that a lot from investors who just wanted to share their opinion. And from their perspective, it would be more cost efficient for me to get a co-founder because it would be someone who would be equally committed and could work for less money. So I heard that time and time again. For me, the the right decision I know is to work independently because that is just my nature. And I've been really successful at it to date. I mean, if you ask my therapist about whether it's successful, like on a personal <laughs> level, I'm not sure Dr. Lily would agree. But so from a business perspective, it has worked. Um, I've yeah. had partnerships. I've tried. I mean, it really is like a marriage. I mean, you just, it's something that you constantly have to work at. You have to identify someone who is is equally committed. You know, those investors are right in that way. And I find that that's very hard actually, because people's motives can be different. Even though they have different motives, they have to be equally willing to put in the work toward those motives or toward whatever they deem the ideal result. So I think it's a decision that is not uh, unanimously right or wrong. I just think that it's dependent upon each person and, and whether it's a good fit for them. I know a lot of people who are in co-founder relationships where they're thriving and where they it's really necessary because they couldn't make decisions by themselves, for example, or they couldn't bear the weight of all of the responsibility. 
So it just depends. I think also too, that's such a good point about the motivations, like really understanding what motivates someone to be successful because it could be so different. And I would yeah. find that, I think that's really challenging because I agree. It's like really getting to the bottom of that and figuring yeah. it out. Yeah, totally. I mean, one person could just want to make a lot of money. The other person could just want a lot of publicity. I don't know. You know, it's just like aligning those things could be challenging. Right. Um, Talk a little bit about the funding aspect. Did you ever think about maybe bootstrapping it? Or were you someone who was like, I want to get funding from the get-go? Like, what are your thoughts on that? We bootstrapped, we've, we've bootstrapped until now, you know, and we're close to 2 million in revenue and profitable. So I'm very proud of that. I did not necessarily do that intentionally. I don't know if this is just my own relationship with money or self-worth or just by nature of not really being surrounded by many people who had capital investment at the time I started this business, but I just didn't really consider that as an option for me. I didn't know how to even start. I also don't have wealthy parents or a wealthy network. So the idea of like raising family and friends, I'm like, from whom? My friends have like five dollars for a coffee in New York. Like, <laughs> Give me your five dollars. I'm going through a round. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna have to get to a lot of people. So so yeah, so I just I just I think that's why I developed the business model that I did was just out of necessity to to need the business to to fund itself. And then now, obviously, you know, we're at this pivotal point where I really want, I, I really believe in what we're doing. I, I understand the real potential of our, of my ambitions. And so I want to grow and scale it. And so we need, we need capital, but I'm actually really happy with the way that things have worked out because funding the business ourselves has put us in such a better position now, as far as our valuation and the selectivity of our partners that I just think that if I had done that from day one, when I, it was an idea or a concept, it would have been totally different conversation and end result. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's so good. And congrats on all the success. I mean, that's just amazing. That's so cool to build something like that from the ground up and not go through friends and family. <laughs> I think it's really smart too. Like I was really careful with our money and the efficiency of it. And so now I will carry that in to being properly capitalized and that I think it's just going to ultimately, you know, really benefit the business. Yeah. What is the long-term vision of and for pop-up grocer beyond just the permanent space in New York? I mean, we want to be the discovery destination for grocery, both here in the U.S. and internationally, and both offline and online. So the world is our oyster. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I really am so excited. Yeah. I mean, there are going to be some online, there's going to be a lot of online growth. There's going to be a lot of brick and mortar growth. I also really believe in the potential of these other kind of activations I named before, like store and store and branded shelves and vending machines. So look out. <laughs> Badass. I'm so excited for that. Also too, to think about the different types of brands and tastes you could tap into internationally. So exciting to think about that. Yeah, I think the concept would have to source 
locally, like, I, you know, I don't think it makes sense to go into London, for example, and present American products, at least with our existing model, because these brands would be interested in participating with us where they can have a market expansion. Mm-hmm. But that even more excited. So I'm like, great, I get to learn the London market, yeah. <laughs> new emerging brands there, like, my life just continues to get more and more stimulating. <laughs> I love it. And also their grocery behaviors, right? Because here it's yeah. one thing, but in other countries, it's completely different. So you're almost learning about not only the brands and the taste, but also the behaviors and what's going to motivate someone to come in and try things. Totally. And that's how I've utilized grocery stores and was one of the, you know, sort of the impetus for the creation of Pop-Up Grocer as well. So like every time I go to a new city, I go to its grocery store to learn about its culture. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's a, it's a really exciting prospect. That's so true. You go to the grocery store and you're like, what are the snacks? Obviously I'm CPG obsessed. So maybe that has an influence on the experience, but yeah, that's one of the best parts is seeing yeah. the kind of unique foods they have. I think, I think normal people are not normal, but you know, I think people who aren't <laughs> like, people who aren't in the industry do that as well. I don't, yeah. I don't think we're, we're alone or special because it's, it's also our work. Like, totally. Yeah. So where can people find you and how can people keep track of what city you're going to be in? You can visit popupgrocer.co where we keep track of our locations. We also include the brands that we feature every time we open. So that's a great way if you're not in the city in which we open to also go through that discovery process. It's also where you can get our boxes that we do a limited drop of with the opening of each store. And you can find all those updates and conversation on our Instagram too, at popup.grocer. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much, Emily, for the really fun conversation. And hey, if you guys are listening and you're in Chicago, first of all, why haven't you said anything to me? Second of all, make sure to go check out Papa Grocer in Wicker Park right now. It's the last week, actually. So head over there before June 1st get what you need. I'm going back to get my spice bear jam because it was so freaking good. But yeah, make sure to go check it out before it closes up. And if you loved hearing about Emily's story and how she built this brand, go give Pop-Up Grocer a follow on Instagram and the link will be in the show notes so you can keep tabs on where they're going to be next. Lastly, you guys know what I'm going to say, but I got to say it. If you loved today's episode, please go give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. I have such a Midwestern accent when I say that. Apple Podcasts. And a review if you're feeling generous. I spend a lot of time on this podcast. Really, I do because I love it and I love meeting new entrepreneurs and it's really genuinely fun for me. But I'm always looking to get this information in front of more people. So your support really helps us out, helps me out. And I appreciate you for the time that you spent or spend doing that. So thank you. And with that said, I'll catch you guys next week. (laughs) 